This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To find out more, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Thank you very much, Matthew. I hardly know how to respond to that introduction. I'm quite embarrassed. Um, on, on the nepotism, very briefly, it was almost by accident rather than design, really, that I ended up being here. Selling the opening slot to potential speakers is harder than it sounds. And so in the absence of anyone else being willing to take the opening slot, I obviously had to step in. And it may well be that at the end of this presentation, I'm running from you. This is intended to be a presentation and a book project that is provocative, it's meant to inspire debate, reaction, and controversy. And with that in mind, I very much look forward to the Q&A and the interaction. And no response, no question, however critical and however controversial and provocative, will be unwelcome. The book is intended to inspire debate. To say a little bit about the book, it's, it's a work I've been developing for about three years, based on extensive fieldwork in sub-Saharan Africa and... It was one of the main elements of a previous research project I worked on called Global Migration Governance, which was thinking about the international institutional architecture relating to human mobility and particularly cross-border movement. And the project and the book can be read at two levels. On one level, relating to the question of refugees and migration, it's trying to think about the changing nature of cross-border displacement and what that means for the institution of asylum in the 21st century. So as the nature of who is moving across borders 
and the reasons why they're moving across borders has changed, who today are the people who should have a human rights-based claim to not be returned to their country of origin? And what does that mean in the contemporary world? But on a second level, it's also asking a broader question about global governance and international institutions in world politics. And the question it's trying to ask is, under what conditions do old international institutions, created at a particular moment and juncture of history for a particular purpose, adapt and change to new problems and challenges? So it's asking that question in relation to cross-border displacement to say, the international institutional framework regulating states' responses to refugees was created in the 1950s, it's adapted relatively slowly, and the nature of the problem to which it responds has changed far more radically. To what extent does the existing current institutional framework have the capacity to adapt and change, particularly at national and local levels? So, again, it can be read at those two levels. One, a contribution to refugee studies and forced migration, the other really exploring the nature of international institutions and how they translate from the global to the national and local level and change and adapt over time. By way of background then, we normally assume that states are primarily responsible for the fundamental human rights of their own citizens. But just occasionally, governments are unwilling or unable to protect the most fundamental rights of their own citizens. And in response to that, the international society has created the global refugee regime as a way of providing international protection, a form of substitute protection, to people who cross borders as a last resort because their own governments are unable or unwilling to provide those fundamental rights. Now, the main two elements of that regime, as you'll be aware, are an international treaty, the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees, that defines who is a refugee and the rights to which such people are entitled, and an international organization, the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, that supervises states' implementation of their obligations under that convention-based framework. However, that framework was created at a particular historical juncture and for a particular geographical context, post-Second World War Europe. And it was created in that context to address the aftermath of the Holocaust and the start of the Cold War era. And as such, the definition of a refugee focused on people fleeing a well-founded fear of persecution, people fleeing active persecution by their own governments, the targeted discriminatory acts of a government. And that framework was designed and envisaged by its creators to adapt over time, either through <coughs> ad hoc intergovernmental agreements or through the jurisprudence and interpretation of courts at the national level. But in practice, it has adapted relatively slowly and arguably more slowly than the changing nature of cross-border displacement. So today, a debate has emerged on the so-called new drivers of displacement, to use the language of the High Commissioner for Refugees. In the context of these old international institutions, protecting people fleeing persecution, new drivers of displacement have apparently emerged, according to High Commissioner Antonio Guterres. And amongst those new drivers have been identified generalised violence, environmental change, food insecurity, and a whole range of other new causes of cross-border displacement. But within that policy debate, there's very little analytical clarity about how we make sense of those new drivers and what it means for who is crossing borders and who should have a human rights-based claim to asylum and the right to non-reformal. And a main element of that contemporary debate has focused on so-called climate change-induced displacement, environmental displacement, or climate change refugees. And that's dominated the institutional debate and the policy debates at the international level in a way that I would argue, as my starting point, is a misguided and problematic starting point for that debate. And I think the focus on climate change refugees and environmental displacement is problematic at an institutional level for at least two reasons. Firstly, it's problematic because of the challenge of attribution. It's extremely challenging, if not impossible, to attribute many elements of cross-border displacement to a single environmental cause. In reality, with the exception of so-called sinking islands or extreme rapid onset crises, the majority of slow onset 
displacement in the context of environmental disaster is likely to be multi-causally related to a range of factors, particularly weak governance. With a strong government, governance and strong resilience capacity within a regional context or within a country, it's unlikely to require cross-border displacement. But secondly and more importantly, that focus on environmental change is arguably more problematic because it's arguably irrelevant to the question of who should have an entitlement to cross an international border. Because I would argue that what should matter is not a particular cause of cross-border displacement, but the underlying rights which, when unavailable in a country of origin, necessitate border crossing as a last resort. So one of my central claims is that the basis on which we should arbitrate between a human rights claim to cross a border shouldn't be privileging an arbitrary particular cause, but it should be a threshold of human rights which, when unavailable in the country of origin, necessitates border crossing. So I'm arguing that we need a rights-based framework rather than a privileging of particular causes to make sense of this. This leads me to reframe that debate as a shift from cross-border displacement that stems primarily from reasons of persecution, the acts of countries of origin, to a framework that needs to include and recognize socioeconomic rights deprivations, um, the emissions of states, as an equally serious and emerging cause of cross-border displacement. So there's a disparity in the international institutional architecture between the privileging of protection for people fleeing civil and political rights violations by states on the one hand, and the relative neglect and arbitrarily draconian treatment of people fleeing the inability or unwillingness of states to mitigate serious threats to their human rights and human security. And arguably there's been a trend over time of a declining number of repressive states engaging in persecution, albeit that it's still very prevalent, and the emergence of so-called fragile and failed states, such as Haiti, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, North Korea, Myanmar, and the African cases that I'm going to look at in more detail, where people are fleeing desperate circumstances that fall outside the 1951 convention framework. And for one element of this, we have a relatively high degree of legal precision at the international level. The 1951 convention standard relating to people fleeing persecution is relatively widely accepted and strongly institutionalized, and although no mean, by no means consistently implemented by states, has a relatively high degree of acceptance by governments and implementation by governments. On the other hand, for people fleeing um, socioeconomic rights deprivations, even of a very extreme level, there are very weak and imprecise legal frameworks. The refugee regime framework has adapted through ad hoc regional conventions such as the OAU refugee definition, the Cartagena Declaration for Latin America, and the European Council Directive to include other elements that supplement that definition. The OAU definition includes people fleeing serious disturbances to public order and generalized violence. The Cartagena Declaration includes people fleeing generalized violence. And the European Council Directive includes subsidiary protection for people fleeing torture, inhuman, cruel, and degrading treatment. And as Jane McAdam and others have highlighted, international human rights law provides standards relating to people fleeing serious deprivations, but there's extreme inconsistency in the application of those standards. In regions like Africa, even conventions like the OAU Convention are rarely implemented by states, and human rights law fails to fill many of these gaps. And there's, of course, a, a normative debate in refugee studies on whether this distinction is valid, Someone like Matthew Price has argued that it is a perfectly valid distinction and that we should privilege the claims of people fleeing persecution over and above those fleeing deprivation. And Matthew Price makes that case on at least two central grounds. Firstly, he argues that persecution entails a severance of the assumed relationship between state and citizen within the social contract and that that severance that stems from persecution means that individuals need a path to new citizenship in a new state. But in response to that, I would argue that it's just as much of a severance of the social contract to be starving to death and be deprived of subsistence as it would be for there to be a severance based on persecution. The other big claim that Matthew Price makes is to do with the nature of asylum. He sees asylum as a route to citizenship and a route to re-establishing a relationship between the individual and the state. Whereas I would interpret asylum to be 
access to territory um, on human rights-based grounds, whether temporary or more permanent. And so on that basis, Price, in a way, is the main normative protagonist that I'm engaging in debate with. So in order to make sense of this new context, I develop a concept of survival migration. And it's not intended to be a neologism for the sake of it. It's intended to give language to a concept for which there is the absence of language. And that concept is basically the idea of a normative notion of people who cross international borders who should be entitled to non-reformal, as distinct from the notion of a refugee as developed out of law and state practice. And the framing of that concept is intended to capture the underlying purpose of the global refugee regime, or what I would argue to be that normative purpose. And so the working definition I develop of survival migrants is of persons who are outside their country of origin because of an existential threat to which they have no access to a domestic remedy or resolution. So that's a definition with three basic elements. It's people who are outside their country of origin. The international community has access to them, and they have access to the international community. Secondly, they face an existential threat. What do I mean by that? I don't just mean a threat to the right to life, but a threat to the core elements that comprise the basis of human dignity. And the way in which I ground that is in the notion of basic rights, developed by Henry Hsu and applied to the refugee context by Andrew Shacknove. And a basic right is distinct from other rights insofar as it's a right without which it's impossible to enjoy any other right, that you have to have those rights as a precondition for the enjoyment of anything else. And so for Shu, there are three basic rights, basic liberty, basic security, and basic subsistence. Unless you have those things, you can't enjoy any other sets of rights. But the current refugee framework under the 1951 convention arguably protects people fleeing certain deprivations of basic liberty and basic security, but not providing universal coverage across those two, and almost no protection for people fleeing deprivations of basic subsistence. The third element of this definition is to highlight that this is a last resort, that there's no option for people to avail themselves of these rights within the country of origin, and that they absolutely have to cross a border. The diagram is intended to crudely illustrate that I see all refugees as survival migrants, but not all survival migrants as refugees. I see all survival migrants as international migrants, but not all international migrants as survival migrants. And what's really crucial to bear in mind with that diagram, and crucial for the remainder of my presentation, is the first dividing line between refugees and survival migrants. Because arguably, all those category of survival migrants could be interpreted as refugees within state practice, at a national level, or on a global level. So there's nothing to stop the interpretation of the existing refugee definition stretching to include that wider context. And there's variation between states in the extent to which that conceptual framing of the refugee and the practice of interpreting who is a refugee adapts to the outer bounds of survival migration. And what I'm interested in from an explanatory perspective is exploring the conditions under which states' practices of recognizing refugees adapt to include that wider normative category of survival migrants and the conditions under which they fail to adapt and the consequences of that failure. So in the research project, I started with three basic empirical questions. I wanted to ask, firstly, who today is fleeing fragile states and why? Secondly, what have been post-state institutional responses to these populations? And thirdly, how do we explain variation in those responses, both from the host state and the international response? And to do that, I looked at three different populations from the last 10, 12 years in six different host countries of asylum. And I selected the populations I looked at by taking, at the time of the start of my research, the three states that ranked highest on the failed and fragile states index within the African context, Zimbabwe, DRC, and Somalia, and looked at responses to Zimbabweans in South Africa and Botswana, Congolese in Angola and Tanzania, and Somalis in Kenya and Yemen. And the reason I selected those six was because they exhibit variation in the extent to which 
that stretching that I alluded to takes place in which the bounds of the refugee definition do or don't encompass that wider notion of survival migration. And in two of the cases, there's arguably been a degree of stretching, Kenya and Tanzania, to include survival migrants that fall outside the 51 Convention framework. In two, at the opposite end of the spectrum, Angola and Botswana, there's been non-stretching and an extremely brutal and repressive response to those populations. And in two, Yemen and South Africa, an intermediate response. So my puzzle is, in a way, to try and explain why, under certain conditions, the refugee framework at the national and local level can adapt to these new circumstances and new drivers of displacement, and why, in other cases, it fails to adapt at a political level. And from a political science perspective, the argument I make that explains this variation in practice is an interest-driven explanation. It's to say that what matters in each country is the role of interests held by elites within politics, that there are key gatekeepers that we need to identify within the political economy of the state that have an active and important role in determining what international law does in practice to protect people and provide assistance to people. And I look in the book at a range of alternative explanations. The main competing alternative explanation I look at is the role of what international relations scholars call institutionalization. The idea that what explains this variation is the way in which international law is incorporated and developed within legislation and policy at the domestic level. And that's important, for instance, because in some of these states, there are developed refugee acts that enshrine the 1951 convention. In some of these states, the OAU convention is incorporated in national law. So the question is, is this variation explained by institutionalization of law, or is it explained by elite politics? And there are other alternative explanations I look at, including the role of UNHCR that I find to be epiphenomenal in social science language and to follow rather than lead the response of the host states. So to sort of flesh out that argument, that interest-driven account, and answer the three research questions I gave you, I want to now turn to the case studies and give you a sense of the empirics that I've looked at, give you a sense of the fieldwork I've done and what I've found in the variation across the cases. And I want to start with the case that got me into this research, the situation of Zimbabweans in South Africa originally fleeing Robert Mugabe's Zimbabwe. And this was a context which I first came to during fieldwork in 2009 um, in South Africa, in which there were a significantly large number of Zimbabweans crossing the border. And in the words of one NGO worker in South Africa, most people were fleeing the economic consequences of the political situation rather than the political situation per se. And without giving you a sort of political history of modern Zimbabwe, this sort of chain of cross-border displacement had been triggered by Mugabe's land reform policy implemented from February 2000. Um, with the change in government in the UK in 1997 from Conservative to Labour, the British government had uh, gone back on an earlier commitment to continue to provide payments and support and financial aid to Mugabe's government in exchange for deferring <coughs> land reform. And with that shift, land reform began to take place, unleashing a series of international sanctions, capital flight, agricultural collapse, and massive hyperinflation, leading to what in Shona was referred to as a kikia-kia economy, a muddle-through economy. And by the 2008 elections, over a quarter of the world's asylum seekers were Zimbabwean asylum seekers in southern Africa. So this was a massive exodus and arguably the largest mass influx of the 21st century up until the Syria crisis. So huge numbers of people fleeing across the border, particularly in 2008, 2007, 2008, 2009. So what was the South African government's response? Well, the number of Zimbabweans coming to the country for a variety of reasons is hard to estimate because most were in the informal sector. But even the government estimates that it's around 1 to 2 million. And because of South African immigration law and refugee law, because of a particular quirk, Zimbabweans were at least able to access territory. South Africa has what's referred to as a self-settlement policy. All people who want to be seen as asylum seekers or refugees get access to asylum seeker permits upon entering the country. And they retain that status pending a bureaucratic process called refugee status determination. But within that process, at the peak of the crisis, less than 10% 
of Zimbabweans were actually recognised as refugees. So despite what we all know about Mugabe's Zimbabwe, despite what we know about those conditions, a tiny minority are recognised as refugees under the 1951 convention, even though it's a signatory and ratifying state of the OAU convention with this broader definition, South Africa never invokes that OAU refugee convention definition and instead insists on applying the 51 convention definition. And in 2007 and 8, South Africa is deporting 300,000 Zimbabweans a year. So it's sending these people fleeing desperate circumstances back to their country of origin and in the process detaining them in appalling conditions in the Lindela Detention Centre in Joburg and the SMG Detention Centre on the Bitebridge Musina border. But what's interesting from a political science perspective is that South Africa shifts its position for a brief window between May 2009 and January 2011. It provides a moratorium on the deportation of Zimbabweans. It stops deporting them. And that begs the question of, well, why did it adopt this restrictive policy up to that point? And why did it shift at that particular moment? So explaining the policy before and during that moratorium is an interesting question around the stretching and adaptation of the regime. From a government perspective, I argue, as I argue across all the cases, that the incentives from the international system and the incentives from domestic politics on elites shape that response to whether the government adapts or whether the government continues with a restrictive framework. And what mattered was initially the bilateral relationship that South Africa had with Zimbabwe. Up until the change in government from Thabo Mbeki to Jacob Zuma, Mbeki had a very strong personal relationship with Mugabe. And South Africa took on the lead role in the SADC-negotiated process that led to the negotiation of the government of national unity and the development of transition within Zimbabwe. And during that period, South Africa was extremely reluctant to be identified as implicitly criticising the government of Zimbabwe by recognising its citizens as refugees. Simultaneously, domestically, there was a significant level of xenophobia, peaking around the xenophobic violence of May 2008, including directed towards Zimbabweans. And in spite of the obvious human rights situation, there was massive division across government, with Department of Foreign Affairs really trying to push a conciliatory, gentle approach with the Zimbabwean government, where Department of Homeland Affairs, Department of Home Affairs wanted to try and develop a coherent policy but under a lot of pressure from domestic politics to be fairly restrictive. What changed in that relationship during this moratorium was the government in South Africa. Zuma had much less of a history of having a close relationship with Mugabe, and the government of national unity, as developed in Zimbabwe, meant that responsibility lay not just with Mugabe, but also with the MDC alongside ZANU-PF. And there was also a change at the level of domestic politics, represented in domestic opinion polls, in terms of the response and feeling of the South African electorate towards xenophobic violence towards foreigners in the aftermath of May 2008. So there was a shift. Throughout this process, though, the international community is relatively passive. UNHCR says we've got no capacity to deal with this broader population. It's better that they're seen as migrants rather than asylum seekers and refugees. And in the internal evaluation carried out by UNHCR's own staff, they acknowledged weak regional leadership. And UNHCR also recognised in interview that it was compromised in its ability to advocate for Zimbabweans in South Africa precisely because it needed to maintain refugee camps in Zimbabwe, such as the Tongagara camp that protects uh, Congolese refugees in Zimbabwe and also its work in IDP protection. In the second case, um, Zimbabweans in Botswana, there's an interesting contrast because... It relates to the same population fleeing the same set of circumstances in the country of origin. And yet the response is quite different, or it's even more stark than the South African response. Unlike South Africa, Botswana never develops the scope to allow self-settlement or a moratorium during the peak of the crisis. It receives around 40 to 100,000 Zimbabweans during the same period, which is small in absolute terms, but large relative to the country's overall population of 1.9 million. And in a report produced by the African Centre on Migration Studies at Vortisrand, they argued that Botswana has the most exclusionary policy towards Zimbabweans. All Zimbabweans either had to enter the asylum system, and those recognised that refugees had to remain in the Dukwe camp, 
of whom there were only about 800, and the majority were left outside the asylum system, facing exploitation and deportation, with Botswana having the highest per capita spending on deportation of any southern African state. So why this stark triage? Well, again, coming back to my framework, which is sort of looking at the role of international and domestic incentives on the government of Botswana, there was a recognition that at the domestic level, Botswana was adhering to the national legal framework. It has a national asylum legislation dating back to the 1960s, which works with the 1951 convention, and according to the government, it's implementing the 1951 convention. It's protecting people fleeing persecution, and that didn't apply to the majority of Zimbabweans. Botswana also faced rising xenophobia, particularly directed towards the Zimbabweans. And again, there's work reflecting opinion polls on that, with this very strong animosity towards the Zimbabweans. And Botswana was also in a position where it could reject any criticism by the international community. As a middle-income country, it hasn't been reliant upon international assistance. And so the international community has had very little leverage. It's had difficulty working in influencing Botswana's response to that population. And this was exemplified by, in 2009, the UNHCR representative did criticise the government of Botswana um, over its response to Somali refugees and was promptly expelled from the country, meaning that UNHCR had very little leverage. So the Botswana response is even more stark than the South African response of being this triage of either you're a 51 refugee convention, 51 convention refugee, fleeing persecution, or you're not, and you face roundup and deportation. The next population I look at is Congolese in Angola. And this is a fascinating case that's been extremely undocumented in policy, academia, or the media, but is quite appalling and quite revealing in its own right. And it's looking at people crossing borders from two of the less famous provinces of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Bandundu and Western Kasai in the south of the country. And unlike, for instance, the East, North Kivu, South Kivu, Bandundu and Western Kasai haven't been characterized by civil war or ongoing violence. They're relatively peaceful provinces. But they have the highest rates of malnutrition and food insecurity in the entire country. They have very little infrastructure. They have very little arable land. For a time, they had diamond mines, but those extractive industries have been largely exhausted. And during the context of the Angolan Civil War, the UNITA rebel group that occupied Lunda Norte and Lunda Sul was very welcoming to Congolese crossing the border. UNITA had a strong, privileged relationship with the government in Kinshasa, and particularly the Mobutu regime, and Congolese were welcomed across as migrant labor, and they needed to cross the border because of the lack of livelihoods opportunities available in those southern provinces. But with the end of that civil war in 2002, an MPLA coming to power in Angola, the MPLA took a very different position. It was far less tolerant of that cross-border movement across a very porous border from those southern provinces. And what took place between 2003 and 2009 was four very large waves of deportations, particularly from the Lunda Norte diamond mining areas in the north of Angola. And those deportations continue today, not in large waves, but in day-to-day chronic elements of deportation. Um, Ochers documented that around 400,000 people were deported during that time. And there's been very little access to that territory, but Médecins Sans Frontières carried out testimonies by um, people displaced on the other side of the border, on the Congolese side, and it revealed large levels of sex and gender-based violence, gang rape of Congolese women, um, extrajudicial killing, extremely brutal treatment that amounts to arguably torture, inhuman, cruel and degrading treatment. And the witness statements are extremely harrowing. And yet there was very little response to criticize the government of Angola and very little response to the humanitarian crisis along the DRC-Angola border. A lot of the women crossing the border and being deported back um, were in need of post-exposure HIV prophylaxis and simply couldn't get access to that. And this is a case that's received very little documentation and international scrutiny. But it begs the question of, well, why have we had that response from Angola? And why has the international community done so relatively little for this population? Well, from a government perspective, again, the international and domestic incentives 
have been towards a repressive response. The MPLA has been particularly concerned to adopt authoritative control of UNITA areas. And the waves of deportation have coincided with regional or national elections when MPLA have been worried that the Congolese would vote for or campaign on behalf of UNITA. And so those waves correlate with elections at the domestic level. Um, at the international level, though, what's been significant is that the government of the Democratic Republic of Congo has had very little vantage point from which to criticize Angola. It's in a very asymmetric power relationship. Um, Joseph Kabila's immediate elite guards, for instance, are Angolan nationals provided by Eduardo Santos. Um, and equally, what's been important is the political economy coming from the international level, whereby concessions have been given to international diamond mines, and those diamond mining companies have really not wanted artisanal diamond miners from Congo taking their diamonds. And so implicated in these repressive responses haven't just been agents of the state, including the military and police, but also private security companies that have carried out some of these atrocities and deportations. And the international community has largely failed to response, respond because it's had little influence and different organizations have said this population falls between its mandates. So UNHCR said they're not our problem, they're not refugees. Um, OCHA has said this is really appalling, but it's not as bad as what's going on in the East, so we've got to prioritize. And um, IOM has said we're very happy to help, but someone's got to be writing the checks and no government wants to write checks for us to respond to this population. And so Angola's been relatively insulated with its concern to maintain, um, with its relationships on diamonds and oil with other third countries. The fourth country I look at is the response in Tanzania to a very different group of Congolese. So rather than those fleeing uh, those southern provinces, this relates to people fleeing across Lake Tanganyika from primarily South Kivu to the Kigoma area of Tanzania. And the majority of the refugee population in one refugee camp in Kigoma, the Nyaragusu camp, fled during the two Congo wars between 1996 and 2003. And around 150,000 came to the Kigoma region. And today what's interesting about the Tanzanian response is there's a little bit of a paradox. On the one hand, the Tanzanian government won't invoke a cessation clause and force those who arrived between 96 and 2003 to go back. And the reason it gives for protecting those old arrivals and not engaging in cessation and not engaging in repatriation is not that they are people who are likely to face ongoing persecution, but because the general conditions in those regions of South Kivu mean it would be inhumane and contrary to human rights to ask those people to return. So in the words of the head of the UNHCR field office, the reason why they left may not exist anymore, but the general situation, e.g. health and education, and the constant fear makes me believe that those that stay have to stay. On the other hand, new arrivals crossing Lake Tanganyika from South Kivu have faced a very different response, a much starker response of roundup, detention, and deportation. And the politics explaining that, politic, that response is interesting. Why is it that new arrivals get a different treatment from the old arrivals? Well, it's arguably that there are different sets of incentives on different actors at the domestic level and the international level. So at the national level, it's important to recognize that the national government in the capital, Dar es Salaam, has responsibility for the refugee population in the refugee camps. Whereas on the other hand, it's the regional government and the district and regional commissioners that have responsibility for new immigration across Lake Tanganyika. And there's very different incentives on those actors. The government in Dar es Salaam, responsible for the refugee population, has a direct channel of communication with the international community. It relies on the international community for international assistance, for refugees and humanitarian response, but also development. The regional immigration authorities don't have that same channel of accountability. And meanwhile, the electoral pressure on regional commissioners and the xenophobic response to traders coming across the border is much more stark and present than it is for those <coughs> within the bureaucracy uh, in the capital city. And so the international community has had influence over the national government to influence the old arrivals' response, but very little influence over the regional commissioner to influence immigration policy. 
going to go through this case quite briefly. Um, to think about the Somalis, I look at the response to Somalis in Kenya and Yemen. And there have obviously been a number of waves of displacement of Somalis since the civil war and the collapse of Siad Bar's regime in 1991. Anna Lindley <coughs> identifies a number of phases of that displacement, starting with state collapse between 88 and 95, a period of stabilization uh, up until 2005, and then new ways of displacement with the rise of the Islamic Courts Union and al-Shabaab, and then in 2011, the famine and drought. Kenya's response during that period has been one of using the OAU Refugee Convention to recognize all Somalis from south-central Somalia on a prima facie basis, recognizing them as refugees because they come from south-central Somalia and not because they have been through a, an individualized screening process or refugee status determination process to establish whether they're fleeing persecution. And so in a way, that's meant that there hasn't been a triage process to say, is the most proximate cause of flight persecution? Is it conflict? Is it famine and drought? But there's been a general acceptance that if you're coming from that part of Somalia, then you have an on-the-surface um, basis on which to claim asylum and refugee status. And that's meant Kenya's response has been relatively inclusive. Um, but it's privileged numbers over rights in the sense that the framework has been one of humanitarian containment. All Somalis have been obliged to remain within the Dadaab refugee camps along the border, and those camps have become very overcrowded. They were created with a capacity of 120,000 and now host over half a million Somalis. And gradually that's led to something of a tipping point, where in 2009, Kenya formally closed its border. Um, it also had a significant backlash against Somalis um, in the eastly area of Nairobi, um, with grenade attacks, with the implication of al-Shabaab that reached its most recent peak point with the Westgate shopping centre attacks. And so that's under threat. But what's particularly interesting is that even during the famine and drought of 2011, people for whom the predominant and immediate cause of flight may have been environmental circumstances were still included within refugee camps and the shuttle diplomacy of UNHCR contributed to maintaining that asylum space for a broader population of survival migrants. So why that broadly inclusive response until this tipping point? Well, again, at the international level, Kenya has been concerned with international legitimacy. Ever since Daniel Arap Moy provided that broadening of the response of the Kenyan government, the government has wanted international funding and international recognition for its role in the refugee regime. That's gradually changed with growing politicization, with the immigration minister, George Saitoti, um, and Yusuf Haji, more recently the defense minister, really pushing a more xenophobic political line for political gain. At the international level, um, UNHCR has had more influence precisely because refugee protection has arguably been delegated to UNHCR. Um, so you, James Milner, for instance, characterizes the response as um, containment and abdication, with the abdication element being the handover of responsibility to the international community. The response to Somalis in Yemen has been arguably one of a sort of middle ground response. Um, despite not being a signature of the OAU Convention because Yemen is out of Africa, um, Yemen has provided a relatively inclusive response over time to Somalis, in contrast to its very repressive response towards Ethiopians. Many Somalis have crossed the Gulf of Aden to get there and are recognized again under a prima facie basis, but under the 1951 Refugee Convention. They receive limited assistance. Most are in urban areas rather than the one camp, the Al-Karaz camp. They congregate, for instance, in the Al-Basatin area of Aden and also in Sana'a. There's a really interesting contrast with the response to Ethiopians. Ethiopians face refugee status determination and are often very quickly deported from the country. And even during the famine and drought in the Horn of Africa in 2011, when a survey carried out by the Regional Mixed Migration Task Force revealed that Ethiopians and Somalis crossing the border in the famine and drought had very similar reasons for crossing the Gulf of Aden. It was based on famine, drought, lack of subsistence the response they received was massively contrasting. Um, many of the Ethiopians that Yemen has received are Oromo and Ogaden, so they're, from, they're identified with secessionist movements. And that's led to a very radically different response 
in which there's been huge discrimination against Ethiopians, partly because of the bilateral relationship between Yemen and Ethiopia, and partly because of an ethnic association um, of Ethiopians as being associated with lower caste groups within in the Yemeni context. Um, whereas the Somalis have had linguistic and cultural commonalities and been much more welcomed within the country. But that's changed over time. And today in the context of the transition in government in Yemen, there's been a move towards thinking about introducing refugee status determination, including for the Somalis. So it's getting more repressive over time, even for the Somalis. So why that response? Well, there's arguably rising xenophobia, less so for the Somalis than Ethiopians, but it's on the cards that the policy might change over time. And there have been different sets of international pressures. Um, Yemen's had a strong bilateral relationship with Ethiopia and wasn't, hasn't wanted to be seen to be criticising the Ethiopian government, similar to Mbeki's relationship with Mugabe in that sense. Um, whereas the absence of a viable state partner in Somalia has made the <coughs> bilateral relationship very different. At the international level, UNHCR has been extremely compromised in its ability to criticise and engage with the Yemeni government. It's been under a lot of pressure from its European donors to control irregular secondary movements and migration across the Gulf of Aden and has worked, for instance, through the Regional Mixed Migration Secretariat and Task Force to try and control mixed migration by putting more and more controls and more pressure on Yemen to engage in migration management as a way of cutting off the flow of Somalis to Europe. So it's gradually changing in spite of this earlier period of tolerance. So that gives you an awful lot of empirical material and some inductive sense of the cases. But what does that mean if we abstract from it for my overall argument, the overall case I'm making about the conditions under which existing international institutions can and do adapt to these populations on the margins of the refugee framework? Well, very crudely, to summarize some of what I've just argued, what seems to be the case, and this is obviously a very crude parsimonious representation of very complex cases, is that what seems to matter for this regime stretching or the absence of regime stretching is the incentives on these elites at the national level that can come from reward and punishment for stretching by the international system or reward and punishment for stretching from domestic politics. Where there are strong incentives from the international system or from domestic politics, we get the stretching and adaptation, and where those incentives are absent, we don't. It's a very crude representation but I think the important thing that comes from that in terms of international public policy is that we can't rely simply on international law to do the work. And we don't have to create necessarily new institutions or new treaties to fill gaps. But we need to understand who the elites are at the national level. What incentives come from domestic politics on those elites? What incentives come from extroversion towards the international community at the international level? Who are those gatekeepers in the elite politics? And why and under what conditions do they adapt domestic policy at the national and local levels? So in conclusion, there are three broad conclusions I want to leave you with. The first and most obvious, which I think is important, is this massive inconsistency in responses to people fleeing human rights deprivations. And I would argue from a normative perspective that that inconsistency is arbitrary. That if we take a basic rights perspective, we're privileging a particular category of cross-border migrants and displaced populations over another, and the response is arbitrary from a normative perspective, but anything but arbitrary from a political perspective. Secondly, and relatedly, in the absence of legal precision at the international level, national politics shapes outcomes. So where we have precise international standards, they're more likely to have influence. As soon as they become ambiguous or imprecise, politics takes over how those international norms are reconciled and understood, particularly in the African context where national courts are weaker than in other parts of the world. And thirdly and finally, if we want to think about institutional adaptation and change and the conditions under which old institutions can adapt to new challenges and new contexts, I think we can think about change at three levels. There's a tendency in international relations to think about international institutions as abstract entities that exist in Geneva and New York. And there's been a body of literature in international relations that started to challenge some of those ideas um, and think about normal localization and how it works down these levels. But in relation to institutional change, I think it highlights that we don't have to reach 
just for reforming international agreements at the global level, but we can think at different levels. We can think across three levels, um, which I would describe as implementation, institutionalization, and international agreements. And the first level is what happens after the level of signing, incorporating, and ratifying agreements. How is it that they interact with politics and capacity at the local level? And if we can tweak that, we don't necessarily need to go up to the formal legal level. Only if that breaks down do we then need to think about what the gaps might be in terms of institutionalization. And only if there's an absence there do we then need to think about supplementary international agreements. In terms of what policy conclusions I draw from this research for the international institutional framework, I think there are gaps at implementation, and that's where the main gaps are. There are gaps at the level of institutionalization, particularly the OAU Convention, which isn't doing much work on the ground to protect people it should be protecting in Africa. But there are also significant gaps in international agreements. And so the argument I make is that that doesn't need to be filled by new treaties to address survival migration. It could be filled by a soft law framework, analogous to the way in which the international community responded to the challenge of internally displaced populations. In the 1990s, when IDPs were recognized as an important population of international concern, the Byrne-Brookings process developed a soft law framework, the guiding principles on internal displacement, based on consolidating existing standards of international human rights law and international humanitarian law. And in this area, we have international human rights law standards. These individuals have rights qua human beings, even if they're not recognized as refugees in the practice of states. And as such, if we could consolidate a consensus on the application of international human rights law in contexts where jurisprudence on this is weak, like Africa, and have global level standards, it might take us a little way forwards. As with the IDP context, what will also be important, though, is to match that normative development with an institutional corollary, to have interagency collaboration that fills those gaps and ensures that organizations like UNHCR, IOM, and the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights collaborate on who is responsible for filling gaps that we see in relation to some of these populations. Thank you very much for listening. about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk slash resources slash connect.